How many? Uh, all right, uh, four. <laughs> Seinfeld. Four. I'll be five, ten minutes. Welcome to Bottle Episodes, a podcast where we discuss very special TV episodes or movies set in a single primary location. I'm CJ. And I'm Courtney. And today we are discussing the Seinfeld episode, The Chinese Restaurant, Season 2, Episode 11, written by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, directed by Tom Cherones. It aired May 23rd, 1991. And here's what this one's about. Jerry, Elaine, and George wait for a table at a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's the post. That's the whole bag. That's the whole thing. (laughs) This episode is bringing mad, that's it, that's the post energy. (laughs) It's the most minimal. It's the simplest you could ever do in terms of plot and story, because there's barely a plot and a story. It's one of the earliest episodes in which Seinfeld sort of announces itself as this form-breaking, convention-defying, so-called show about nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And you you get that energy right out of the gate. <laughs> Courtney, what was your experience like, both with watching this episode and the show Seinfeld in general? Okay, yeah, no, that's that's good. So I... Growing up, this was my dad's show. He would watch the show. It would come on and I would immediately like leave just because I (laughs) I was not interested. It's not for me. It (laughs) doesn't speak to me. This has not been built for me or my entertainment. And that's okay. Not everything is for you. And I have to admit, having watched this episode, it just it's still more of the same. I still have that same energy of like... I don't know. I don't think this is really for me, even now as an adult. Interesting, Because I would assume we've had similar conversations like this before where we're like, we were children, so it didn't really appeal to us. But given Seinfeld's fixation on the minutia of everyday life, Mm -hmm. there's a part of me that would have assumed that if you didn't really connect to it as a kid, it was Mm -hmm. because, well, I haven't really had to wait for a table uh, for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I haven't had to go find a car in a parking garage, right? Right. So all that to say, like, you know, you haven't really experienced these, the so-called minutia of everyday life that they're making fun of, so it doesn't really resonate with you, but you have clearly, now that we're full-grown adults, and yet you still say, I don't think this is for me. Can you unpack that a little? Absolutely. I, I know that they are not built to be likable. The whole likability conversation is... Characters do not have to be liking likable for something to be compelling. Yes. But I do have to say I need to be able to spend time with the character to feel like I'm connecting. Like, I feel like I need to be able to at least find a way to connect with these characters in order for me to continue wanting to be immersed in their worlds. True, true. And with these particular folks, I guess I just have very little patience for pettiness <laughs> about the way that the world works. <laughs> Especially when there's very little, and any Seinfeld fan is just, when I say this word, they're going to be like, you are barking up the wrong tree, man. But there is no vulnerability to right. these characters, right? Maybe, right. now that's arguable, especially with the George character. True, Because true, George true. is always yeah. low status. Yes. He's always on like the wrong end of things, <laughs> right? Um, he's very much the Larry David of the show. Absolutely, he is. Yes. And so, you know, you could kind of feel bad for him, right? right. Or yeah. you could kind of feel like, oh, man, like every dog has his day and I just want George to have his day. But <laughs> to your point, 
you know, Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, they're definitely in their own worlds. Uh-huh. Yes. They're very self-centered in a way that's almost like sociopathic at times. Right. Right. And, and I get that that's the point of the show. These are people who they want to take up their petty grievances and wear them as like a flag across their chest. And they want, you know, things to go very specific in certain ways. And there's, I guess for someone who is, <laughs> I'm going to say this phrase and I already hate it coming out of my mouth, but as someone who's like a larger picture thinker, like I, I care about the larger picture more so than I care about the minutia. And they are so focused on the minutia of how things are not going right or how they're not going well that it just doesn't appeal to me. And sometimes it's okay to just say a show is not for me. <laughs> like, right. Sometimes it is okay to be like, you know what? It's fine. They're going to do their thing. Someone enjoys this and I'm not going to begrudge them enjoying this. Yes. But this particular group, you know, even, even when we're watching antiheroes, even when we're watching people who are, you know, actually terrible and caustic and they're, they're, they're doing toxic and horrifying things. There has to be some level of charisma there. And I don't always get that. And I know that's crazy because I'm talking about like Julie Louis-Dreyfus, which is insane. Yes. But there's just something that it just doesn't pull me in. And I don't know why specifically that is. If it's just the chemistry, if it's just the charisma missing, or if it is just the fact that I get so annoyed that I can't handle it. There's a barrier for you. There's a barrier we're, we're, for me. We're approaching those juncture points in the conversations that we have on this podcast where I it's almost like I feel I see 10 doors in front of me <laughs> and I, I want to go down all of them. Yeah. So I'll do my best to manage those doors. <laughs> One is you said big picture that mm -hmm. you you like big picture from your stories and they're a little too focused on the minutia. Yes, I get that. I think what frustrates me a little about this show, and and tell me if this is what you're speaking to, mm. is that there are no real like long-term arcs for the characters. Um, you yes. can watch a season one episode and watch a season nine episode, and the, the characters emotionally are pretty much in the same place. I understand that this show is designed so that you're not getting a nice little moral at the end of each story or even like a strong transformation. And right? I'm fine with I'm fine, fine with, with there that. not being a moral at the end. It doesn't have to be an after school special. By design, I think it's very close to a comic strip mm -hmm. where it's these four personalities and they that's kind of all they are is like their personalities, their sensibilities. You don't. Right. There's not a lot of interiority. And yet there is. In in the way that you can predict how Elaine would feel about something. Yes. Right. Yes. But in but in that way, that's also like, I don't know what their hopes, fears, dreams, and wants are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which again seems like barking up the wrong tree. But whether it is or it isn't, or whether we're appreciating this show for what it is, or like wanting it to be something it has no desire to be, mm -hmm. we're speaking to our limited resonance with this show. Yes. Absolutely. That being said, I think I enjoy it a little bit more than you do. Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me. <laughs> and tell so me, I want I, I do want to speak to that. OK, so one, the show is very influential and that cannot be denied. Even to use right. a word like influential doesn't really seem to be like painting half the picture. It's like there was before Seinfeld and after, not just in movies and television, but also the culture. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that you could have had the appeal of social media Twitter, Facebook, Instagram without 
a juggernaut like Seinfeld. Because Seinfeld taught us as a culture that waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant is interesting. (laughs) That debating (laughs) masturbation with your friends is interesting. Yeah. Right? That actually is interesting. Regardless of whether or not Seinfeld ever came along. Um, (laughs) That, that you know, foibles at the dry cleaner, right? That that I could be a television character, that I could be entertaining, right? Mm. My life doesn't have to be so unusual or filled with hijinks yeah. or moments of huge crises and emotion, right? I right. can be entertaining just by being me. And I think that that is an idea that we all take for granted now, but yeah. which was very revolutionary in, especially in 1990, 1991, So he taught, for better or worse, Seinfeld taught us how to be. On the flip side, I would be very curious to talk to someone who came to the show today Mm -hmm. because I think that it's very out of step with where we are as a culture now. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is what you're speaking to. That whole sense of not caring, of being like dispassionate, of Mm -hmm. being an observer who's sort of above it all. Yeah. That was not just on television. That was like everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> at the risk of sounding like an old person, it was very cool to not care. Yes. And now it is in the lockstep of the zeitgeist mm-hmm. to care about what's going on, not just with yourself, but with your community, with your loved ones. Like mm-hmm. we want to be people and we want to see people who are invested. And Seinfeld is the exact antithesis of that. I do want to piggyback off of that a little bit. I know we've kind of talked about the fact that when I first started watching Star Trek, like the original series, I had, I had to step back and remind myself that, Oh, right. The reason why all of these tropes feel familiar and kind of, I I know where they're going. I know what's going to play out. I know what's going to happen. It's because this is the originator of that. And that's why it feels not as powerful as I think it may be built up in other people's minds. And it's like, well, you have to remind yourself, this is the originator of that. Everything after that has had to take this and kind of make a twist or make a change or think about it. So perhaps this is something I'm encountering with Seinfeld as well, where it is the originator of that sort of like, cool, we're going about our lives. We're a little bit emotionally distant from what is happening so much so that we're just going to nitpick at the tiny bits And that just became part of the overall culture. And now we're in a place, like you said, where we want the vulnerability. We want the connection. We want to figure out, you know, what do you want? What does this character want? And it just feels like I can't ever get to that answer within Seinfeld. But obviously that is by design. It's interesting that specifically you take issue with the small scaleness of it. Yeah, just because this podcast is all small scale, right? (laughs) Like we're we're celebrating these small scale stories. And and certainly I will say that I was trying to find some antecedents to this kind of minutia based storytelling. Mm -hmm. To me, it made me think of one of my favorite short films called Passionless Moments. It's from 1985 and it was co-directed by Jane Campion, who's kind of having a moment right now with Power of the Dog. I would definitely recommend you to look it up because it is one of my it it did what Seinfeld was doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It predates Seinfeld by six years. It's all these amusing monologues of people just going about their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And we get to listen in on 
the weird awkwardness of mm -hmm. them processing what's around them, right? But here's the difference. We're talking about minutia and we're talking about pettiness as if they're synonymous mm -hmm. because Seinfeld makes them synonymous, right? Yes. But whereas Passionless Moments was about minutia, I don't think those characters right. were being petty. But yeah. Seinfeld is all about fixating on the minutia and deriving this sort of dissatisfaction of life because of it. And perhaps yes. that's the thing where you're like, I don't abide by this. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think that for me, it is less about the minutia because I, I do like taking a look into somebody's life and seeing those small routines, those small things that they are doing on a daily basis that make up the sum of their person. Like I, I, I do enjoy taking slice of life looks at things, but I think for me, it is the, the pettiness, the, the, the sort of the back and forth, you know, she had man hands, you know, like, like, yes. like that kind of stuff that makes me go, okay, I don't, I'm not interested. Like if I were at the booth behind these people, I would be getting the check as quickly as I possibly could. Like I would <laughs> right. be like, I need to be out of this situation because I cannot listen to these folks complain in this particular way when there are other things that are going on. <laughs> like, you know, so I think for me, it is, it is actually the, the nature of it. And we've talked about like my feelings about cringe comedy and how like it, it kind of pulls me up and pulls me back a little bit from what I'm experiencing when I'm watching a show like the office or something like that. I think that for me, there is this screen between me and these individuals because of their pettiness. Like that I, it does not allow me to immerse myself into their world. But again, the show is not asking you to do that. In fact, it doesn't want you to do that. It wants you to kind of just have a good time and enjoy their antics. And maybe there's a catharsis for a lot of people through that this sort of acting out or debating for the sake of this is just something that's on my mind. I need to talk about it. Yes. Like there is a catharsis there for some folks. And I totally get that. But you know, for me, I'm like, I'm a material girl. I want all of it. I want high fantasy. I want world building. I want like, I want something I can escape into. And perhaps that is where I'm having trouble is I can't escape into this. I totally hear that. I think in my mind, I'm drawing an unlikely comparison to All in the Family. Mm. And the reason my mind goes there is because I think a lot of relevant media mm -hmm. is about surfacing things that we're too afraid to talk about, mm -hmm. which might take on a different color in 2022 when you can find anybody online <laughs> to talk about anything that you want. But... In this pre-Twitter universe, mm -hmm. right, All in the Family was very cathartic because it was saying things that we were all thinking behind the curtain, right? We were all saying at the dinner table, but you would never put on television. And now <laughs> here we are. It's on television. Now we've turned it into a shared experience, for better right. or worse. Now we're all talking about bigotry, racism, all these social issues, yeah. right? Obviously, Seinfeld is not a social issue driven show. It's no. the entire opposite of that. But very likewise, it was surfacing these things that you never knew anybody else even thought. I mean, that is what Twitter does today. Right. I'm not saying anything new here, but it's that observational comedy. And you're like, oh, gosh, like I'm having this private thought. And now this private thought has become a shared communal moment. Experience, yeah. But I also think that that beauty of Seinfeld is what is sort of giving you all these grievances 20 years later because you're like, mm -hmm. why is this a shared moment, 
Why right. are you framing this incredible pettiness that right. only like pollutes the discourse in the tiniest but most significant way, yeah. right? Why are you putting this on a pedestal that's not really for me? Right, exactly, exactly. And, and I guess too, like there is a part of me that's just kind of like, these folks are supposed to be, I think roughly our age, like they're in their late 20s, early 30s. Yes. And I guess for me, it's just kind of like some of this feels, forgive me, this feels very boomer. Like it feels very much like you can't wait the length of 23 minutes to get a table. Like, like, like. it was a very short amount of time. Right. And yes. when the I maitre mean, d says five, 10 minutes, it's right. like, OK, you know, he undershot a little bit. But like a 20 minute wait in New York City on on a Friday night. Right. Is reasonable. Right. And the world is supposed to bend to you because you want to watch this movie. Like, yes. <laughs> like it right. puts me in the position of feeling like maybe I'm being petty towards these characters. Right. I just I cannot stand the fact that they can't be patient. I will say this, too. I'll make one more unlikely comparison and then we can start talking about the episode in earnest. <laughs> It also makes me think of the complicated legacy of the X-Files or what Mm. has become the complicated legacy because conspiracy thinking was really the engine of that show. And it was framed as something that heroes do because Mm. conspiracy thinking heroes see the world other than what it is. Right. Right. We're not satisfied with the story that we're given. We're going to discover the truth. Yeah. The truth is out there and and we're going to dig and find it. However, now the the culture has run rampant with conspiracy thinking and that X-Files fantasy thinking has now become an ugly reality. Mm-hmm. Likewise, back when Seinfeld was on the air, it might have been fun and insightful even to surface some of these petty thoughts. Yes. But now how that sort of manifested itself in ugly reality are like Karen's in the wild. Yes. You know. <laughs> Because going up to the maitre d' and being like, please, is our table ready over and over again? You follow that kind of mindset to mm-hmm. its logical conclusion. And congratulations, you have a Karen. Right. You have four Karens. You have four Karens. Who <laughs> <laughs> right. are all friends with each other and are so self-centered that they can't see beyond their own self-centered wants and needs. And it's just like, all right, do I want to do I want to engage? With do I have to Karens? engage? Yes. <laughs> Without getting too far off the beaten path or beating a dead horse, I wasn't as disturbed as the, by the pettiness as you. However, a lot of Jerry's thoughts about men versus women, mm-hmm. obviously very dated. Super dated. Very when Harry met Sally. Very, <laughs> I love you, you're perfect now, change. Just, right. <laughs> um, to that end, it would be interesting to see a Seinfeld today. And in fact, there's a Twitter account called Seinfeld Today, oh, really? which sadly hasn't really been updated since 2015, probably because the author has gone on to bigger and better things because yeah. it was really creatively written. George and Jerry uh, dealing with stolen Wi-Fi passwords, <laughs> <laughs> Elaine on a Tinder date, things yeah. like that. Right. <laughs> it would be interesting to see a Seinfeld type show mm-hmm. that engages not just with the technology of today, because that's mm-hmm. pretty superficial, but also like the mores and social contracts of today. Yeah. Because I think that's another reason why its resonance with me was limited and why it was definitely limited with you. (laughs) Again, I have to keep reminding myself and coming back to that place of saying, remember, Courtney, this is the 90s. You know, this is this is just a different time period in which they're experiencing these foibles. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, Courtney. (laughs) 
lot of there's a lot of self soothing going on while watching this show. I mean, it almost sounds like a trauma. <laughs> This, this podcast should never be traumatic, Courtney. It's okay. It's fine. Everyone's safe. It's okay. Great. Okay. Well, I do have a few more tidbits about behind the scenes and the development of this episode, which I think are really interesting. Awesome. I think I'll save those for midway through because they'll have more bearing when we talk about the actual meat and potatoes of the episode. Fantastic. Here comes a hot plot synopsis. And... <laughs> Because a Seinfeld episode is just a clothesline for bits and musings, I am going to include all those diversionary conversations that they have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I almost think that those are more important than like the literal plot points of the yeah. episode, oh, which absolutely. are virtually yeah. non-existent. Okay. <laughs> um, act one. In his opening stand-up routine, Jerry discusses going overtime on a payphone call. Right there is a primary example of <laughs> we don't relate to this. No, I don't know her. What is the payphone? <laughs> right. But just gathering from the content of that stand up bit, it seems like back in the day, if you went overtime on a payphone call, then you could either have the choice to hang up and mm-hmm. go away because you figure it's not worth the extra quarter or yeah. the phone company would call and, and say, Please deposit 25 cents. As soon as he started talking about the payphone, I was just like, oh, okay. All right. Great. <laughs> right. great. Good. We're going to be fine. <laughs> it was the Wild West back then. It was. Jerry, George, and Elaine enter a Chinese restaurant opining about how cops should also become garbage people. I thought that was funny. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> because they are garbage people. Ha. <laughs> I was like, surprise. They do multiple <laughs> jobs now. <laughs> right. Then they request a table. The host, Bruce played by James Hong, says it'll be about five to ten minutes. <laughs> As they wait, George tries to use a payphone to call his current girlfriend, Tatiana, but he keeps being blocked by other people who are using the phone. Meanwhile, Jerry feels guilty that he had to lie to cancel dinner plans with his uncle so that he could go out with George and Elaine and watch Plan 9 from outer space. Elaine, hungry and worried that they have limited time to eat before the movie, tries to convince the gang to eat somewhere else, but Jerry insists they stay put. The host continually assures them that their wait will be yet another five to ten minutes. The group gets agitated as other patrons get seated before they do. Jerry says that he'll give Elaine $50 if she eats food off a stranger's table. (coughs) She almost does it, but she chickens out. George explains why he's so antsy to touch base with Tatiana. He cut a recent date of theirs short because he had to go to the bathroom. Jerry runs into someone who knows his uncle, and he frets that his uncle will find out that he lied to get out of their dinner plans. Thoughts on Act One? I will say, okay, so here here were the things I did enjoy. I guess as far as the actual setup is concerned, I think that the set looked really great. I thought that uh, the way they were all positioned really made sense. And I do enjoy, and we can kind of talk about this as the episode goes on, but I did like the staging of it where in fact the the waiting room does start to empty as they get more and more desperate as they move through that episode. So I, I feel like the use of the bottle itself was a success. I do feel like um, I enjoyed their chemistry. I know I talked about not necessarily being engaged, but between the three of them, they are very skilled performers. So it was really nice to actually kind of see them in their own element, kind of working together as an ensemble. Yeah, I guess I can start there. I love the patter, the volley between all three performers. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that I readily associate with the show, which is just yeah. on me. It's been a hot minute since I've seen this show, because in my mind, 
this show codes as mumblecore, right? Oh, interesting. I mean, this is just like my, you know, particular way of remembering or misremembering this show. Yeah. That it's like this hangout comedy. So we're going to have more like naturalistic dialogue patterns. And it's not really that at all. Everything feels very crisp and choreographed yes. in a way that I like, yet also like very organic. Mm-hmm. There's a sprightliness to it. Yeah. I was surprised to see that Jerry Seinfeld was inspired by Abbott and Costello. Mm. In my mind, they code as very physical performers and right. slapstick oriented performers, yeah. right? But they also had this incredible back and forth, this banter, this understanding that comedy, great comedy, is music of yes. a sort, yes. right? And so you get that between the three of them. One of the takes that I regaled my friends with in high school, aka we would debate about this endlessly, <laughs> I didn't necessarily love the Kramer character. Okay. Because to me, he seems antithetical to this show about nothing conceit. He was so much of this cartoon character. And I understand that, you know, the eccentric is very much a New York archetype. Yeah. But to me, he just sort of like sent the tone and often, you know, the story into these fabulous places. Okay. Right. It took it over the top. Yes. It was two stratospheres removed from everything else that these three were doing. So from my point of view, I loved just seeing these three. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the few episodes that Kramer is not involved with. I've always assumed that it was because Michael Richards wasn't available or something, yeah. right? It was a creative decision because their concept of the character at this time, season two, still pretty early on, mm-hmm. was that Kramer never left his apartment. Really? Interesting. And never really hung out with them. <laughs> so they they did it just to maintain some of that character integrity. And mm-hmm. Larry David has said that if this episode had come just a season later he would have been involved that is Kramer would have been involved he would have been there yeah yeah and I did know I did notice that I was like why is Kramer not with them I did not realize that that was a character beat that they were trying to uh, reinforce a little bit more about the behind the scenes of this episode now that we've gotten a little bit into it NBC executives did not want this episode to happen (laughs) really (laughs) they were very confused by the pitch Here's what I find hilarious. It's so easy in these behind the scenes anecdotes to make the executives the bad guys who don't know anything about story and creativity, which is very often true. I get that. (laughs) And it's very easy to make like the writers, the directors, the actors, the heroes of the piece, right? They're, They're protecting art. In this case... I can definitely see where the NBC executives were coming from Mm -hmm. because you're pitching a half hour of television where there is no story. And in fact, when Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld pitched this episode, they did so without even the conceit of George, Jerry and Elaine going to see a movie. Oh, right. So (laughs) it really was just them going to a Chinese restaurant, having to wait for a table Mm -hmm. They're frustrated at that experience and then they leave and it's over. I think like a classic Hollywood notion that we sometimes like take for granted or don't even see it when it's there is this notion of the ticking clock. Exactly. So just giving them that little added bit of we have to make it in time to see this movie. That is like the perfect story compromise to me because it gives it it gives the characters just a little bit something more to care about, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't betray this impetus for telling a story like this or a non-story like this which is 
to just engage in 25 minutes of nothing. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And, I, and I will say, like, that was the first thing I thought of, like, as soon as I sat down to watch this episode, I'm like, well, what what is the ticking time clock going to be for them to to make sure that that urgency makes sense for them to yes. keep going back to the maitre d' and saying, like, hey, when are you going to let us in? What's going on? That sort of thing. Right. Exactly. But of course, in like true Seinfeld fashion, it's not the end of the world. Right. If they don't make that movie. Right. right. We're not getting all of this laborious backstory about how Jerry needs to see this movie. <laughs> we have actually covered two episodes like this. Yes. On 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 the show. And <laughs> it took me a second to realize it. But we did. There was Never Bathe on Saturday mm-hmm. from the Dick Van Dyke show and the one where no one's ready on Friends. Right. All three of these episodes involve characters trying to get ready for an event, yep. but never making it. But not right? getting there. Yes. And I would say that this episode, in true Seinfeld fashion, gives the least amount of stakes. So they care, but there's not a lot of stakes there. Right, right. right? It's not be I the mean, end yes, plan not, exactly. Plan nine is one night only, <laughs> <laughs> but you get a sense that they'll go home and sort of like forget about it immediately afterward. Right. I think they did a really good job figuring out the parameters or figuring out like what are the time boundaries, what keeps them there aside from just getting a table and what. What are they trying to get out and move toward if they have to leave this place? I think they did a great job setting that up. And to that point, Larry David also, as a rebuttal, pointed out that there is story here. They all kind of, even without the Plan 9 thing, all of the characters are sort of invested in their own business, their own issues. We have Jerry feeling guilty about canceling the plans. We have Elaine, who's just hungry. To me, that's the most obviously... (laughs) relatable <laughs> problem you're at a Starving. you're at a restaurant you're there because you're hungry yeah. you're denied food right? right that's very primal yeah it's perfect you can smell it wafting through it's a whole thing I get exactly it. right right and we have george and the whole phone thing so especially in this day and age all three of those things are readily considered story issues but right. to our earlier point well seinfeld kind of laid the groundwork there It's Mm -hmm. like Seinfeld did redefine what we as a TV viewing audience are willing to consider character problems, story problems. Right. 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 Other observations. I thought that the maitre d' was kind of perfect. Yeah, I agree. I thought so. (laughs) To me, you know, as a show written by white people for white people (laughs) and we're headed into this narratively speaking or media wise, this setting that's very rife with stereotype, right? A Chinese restaurant. Right. You know, my my hackles immediately went up. I'm like, oh God, am I going <laughs> like, to have to... Are we going to be, right, be okay? Are, is this going to be okay? And I thought that there was enough to the character. The character is obviously a plot device. But I thought that this actor, James Hong, did enough interesting things with it. And the director, Tom Cherones, they sort of positioned the maitre d' as this friendly type who's also kind of unshaken by anything that's happening right in front of him. Right. Yes. And my take on it is that he's doing that on purpose Yes. because he's a restaurant owner. He knows Mm -hmm. better if he's encountering a Karen, if he's encountering some kind of difficult customer, he just meets everything with a sort of even friendliness. Exactly. And the way he portrays that, I think is so funny. It's like, Oh yeah. He's so good. This whole show, as we've been talking about, much to our frustration, is about, like, unchangeable characters. (laughs) Characters who are set in their ways. And it's so hilarious to see a side character also (laughs) emulating that in real time. 
Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Like he's so he's so amiable and you know, like it's very clear that there <laughs> there there's this moment where this character enters and he feels like the main character. He is like a catchphrase and everything. He just sort of bursts through the doors. And it's just like, he's immediately like led into the dining room. <laughs> like, yes, here you go. Sir. Oh, this other here patron. Yes. Yes. And it's just so funny to watch that this, this maitre d' character, this business owner, he very clearly has like in his mind a tear. Like he has, he has a list in his head of like these folks, this guy in particular who just swans in, he gets a table immediately. You no have to take what. care of your regulars first. Your regulars, Right. right. And then like, you know, and then there are these other people who were on the list in this particular order. And so we're going to call them in. And then like you can you can tell that he obviously has a, a good handle on this situation. And the, the fact that these characters are not trusting him to me is really like indicative of <laughs> their issues. But I thought that he is a Mater D. I thought he was awesome. He did. A I. Job. It's insane to me that they didn't make a reservation. Yes. It's New York. Yes. They didn't make, make a, a reservation, reservation and they would have been seated in like 20, 25 minutes. Absolutely. The, the restaurant did everything they could. Okay. Exactly. Do, you better not leave a one star <laughs> review on Yelp. Exactly. Lane. Exactly. I guess for me, this also fell into that category of like modern things that probably would have changed, dramatically changed the plot of this. Like you would have made that reservation online. Right. Very quickly. Like Jerry would have gone on open table. Exactly. (laughs) Done it in two seconds. Uh, George would have texted Tatiana. Yes. He would have been on his own phone texting back and forth with her. If it really needed to be a phone call, he would have made a phone call like that would not have been a problem. And they would have gone to a dine in theater. Exactly. And like that 50 bucks would have probably had to have been 100. Yeah, right. (laughs) I do want to talk a little bit more about like that final ironic beat. Let's talk about Act 2. Let's talk about Act 2. Okay. Elaine tries to slip the host $20 to compel him to give them a table. It doesn't work. Tatiana calls the restaurant, but a defeated George misses the call. Hungry and fed up, the three friends leave the restaurant. After they do, the host calls Jerry's name. Their table is ready. (laughs) In Jerry's closing stand-up act, he muses on the social awkwardness of cannibalism. I do think that that final punchline was pretty perfect. Yes. My mind went to the other two episodes that we covered here. The outcomes of each of the three episodes kind of defines their show. Yes. Part and parcel, right? Yes. Friends is a happy ending. Right. (laughs) After a ton of Ross and Rachel drama. Yeah, some angst, a lot of angst. Yeah, exactly. So after romantic angst, we get a happy ending where everybody gets what they want. Dick Van Dyke show. They don't go see the show, right? Or they right. they leave midway through or something, but it doesn't matter because Rob and Laura love each other. Exactly. <laughs> and in Seinfeld, total defeat. <laughs> <laughs> they go to the theater, hungry, upset, annoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they had just waited two more minutes, They'd they would have been fine. Been fine. <laughs> that is like, that's like Seinfeld philosophy to a T. <laughs> the idea that the universe is just like, stacked against us and they're killing us by death by a thousand paper cuts. I really enjoyed the fact that they did not get the thing that they wanted. And that to me is like, girl, Courtney, (laughs) be nicer. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. But I I do want to talk about that because I think that that is intrinsic to the DNA of Seinfeld. And Mm -hmm. 
keys into a lot of the series finale. Have you seen it or do you remember what happens? I I didn't. I've never seen it, but I know what happens. They're put on trial for being awful people and then they end up in prison. And so the reason why that finale really riled a bunch of people is because it punished the characters for being themselves, essentially, Mm. and and in a way kind of indicted us, the audience, for (laughs) loving these characters. Well, you didn't love them, but a lot of people (laughs) did. And so Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld's final act was to be like, did you enjoy the show for nine seasons? Congratulations. You're bad people. (laughs) Which is, I mean, that is a bold move, if not nothing. (laughs) I do also think that execution wise, the finale wasn't perfect. Yeah. Concept wise, it was, man, a definite swing for the fences. And so the reason I bring that up now is that I think that the show does have some kind of a handle on the recognition that these folks are not the best people and they will not be rewarded. There is going to be some kind of comeuppance for their self-centeredness in ways big and small. And I think that that is what makes this punchline at the end of this episode land. (laughs) Is like. They're kind of being like grumpy and frustrated and impatient, and they were uh, denied a reward because of it. I will say that maybe that makes me feel a little bit better watching the <laughs> right. show, knowing that, you know, they're not necessarily going to be rewarded for this kind of behavior. But sometimes it just feels like, is that just them staring into the cold and caring face of the universe? Or is it some kind of actual, like, cosmic... <laughs> comments for their nonsense. Elaine, she doesn't resolve the problem by, you know, taking that egg roll and and getting the 50 bucks. George, as much as he tries to get access to that phone booth, he doesn't get access to it. And then, you know, Jerry, he's, he's worrying about whether or not he's going to actually make that movie, but it gets foiled for him because his uncle's colleague sees him. So all of their efforts are frustrated. They all in some way find themselves lacking what it is that they came into the situation for. Exactly. And so I think that that's a continual debate in the Seinfeld universe. The Seinfeld universe is these four characters against the universe, Mm -hmm. right? And you almost get into these like cosmic questions of of theology. (laughs) (laughs) Is the universe punishing them? Or is it just uncaring and cold and indifferent? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I do think that that is in the text of the show. That's not hyperbole. That is kind of what a viewer is forced to contend with if they think of this show long enough. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Like, I I guess they do have to, you do end up looking at yourself whether you want to or not <laughs> at the end of the show. Right. There's a mirror held up to you. So I don't know. I, I, I do wonder, like, I know that, the big kerfuffle at the end was that a lot of people felt like they had been betrayed for enjoying the characters and enjoying the show. But it's kind of like, what if your enjoyment of the show was the Sean and Freud of them, like not getting what they wanted? Like, what does that say about you? Right. (laughs) My big beef was that I wanted it even when I was a kid and this aired in 1998, Mm -hmm. I wanted the finale to truly be nothing. Mm. I I wanted Mm -hmm. Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld to troll the audience (laughs) by just having the four of them like sit in Jerry's apartment and just like go about their day. I thought that would have been like brilliant. (laughs) And the fact that it was like this big trial episode, you know, it was it was in the late 90s and it was all this OJ trial hoopla. So 
you yeah. could forgive them for wanting to comment on that or or yeah. parody it somehow. But I also think that that's what I didn't like was the epicness mm. of it. But I didn't mind them ending up in jail for being who they were. I thought that that's what I loved about the finale. That's that is a good point, though. Like if they truly wanted this show to end as as a show about nothing, then they could have just done that. They could have just made it a show about nothing. But perhaps people were expecting that or or worried that they were going to do something wild and crazy, which they ended up doing anyway. Yes. So just in a way that didn't necessarily please the crowd. Yeah. To bring that nothingness aspect back to this episode, I will say that if you look at a lot of Seinfeld episodes, mm, they are about something. Yes. <laughs> you know, they do care. A lot of it has to do with like Jerry's endless dating life, which reminds me a lot of Mary Tyler Moore show because <laughs> she had an endless dating life. And you would never yeah. call that a show about nothing. A lot of it has to do with like George's job. Right. And especially as the show went on, there were plot threads that had this distinct sense of cause and effect and all the plot threads would dovetail beautifully at the end and Mm -hmm. A plot, B plot, and C plot would tie each other up Mm -hmm. in a way that was just like comic gold. But this episode, what I love about it, it is truly the encapsulation of the show about nothing because there is no real cause and effect. They come in, they ask for a table, there's like 20 minutes of bullshit And then they leave like it is as simple as the creators intended it to be. Exactly. (laughs) Right. They leave. They leave in the exact place, basically, that they started in without a table, without food, without the movie and then without Tatiana, I guess, (laughs) which good for her girl. You don't yeah, need that. I know, you right? Go. Anytime, anytime someone's wrapped up like with George's romantic bullshit, I'm like, girl, you better run. <laughs> but uh, all that to say, the characters left that restaurant unchanged, but the Chinese restaurant left television forever changed. <laughs> Very nice. Well done. Thank you. I promise I just came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Okay, so let's wrap this up. How full did this make your bottle, Courtney? I know I, I came in hot with my, hey, I don't really care for Seinfeld <laughs> kind of sentiments here. But I will say strictly, strictly, strictly speaking, as a bottle episode, this is a solid, this is a solid bottle episode. So you know what? I'm going to say that it actually does a pretty good job of filling up my bottle. I would give it a B plus, A minus. You know, I think they do a really solid job. With this episode. Okay. Grading on this episode alone. I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fair. Similarly, I don't, just by virtue of the fact that I can't really fault it for anything. I don't, I'm not one of those viewers who goes out of my way to look for faults, right? If something is actively impeding my enjoyment, right? Mm -hmm. I'll flag it. But I did watch this episode like three or four times for this podcast and I really just couldn't find, I mean, it's great. I mean, I will say this. Yes, it was ambitious just by Mm -hmm. virtue of the fact that there hadn't really been anything like this before, Mm -hmm. but you remove that aspect from it and writing wise, it's fairly simple. Yeah. So the bar to clear in terms of a story was relatively low. Yeah. I'm saying that, yes, I couldn't really find fault in it, but the most difficult part of creating this episode was allowing it to exist. Yeah. Once you got past those NBC executives, Mm -hmm. then you could really just chill out and have like a well put together, crisp, 
25 minutes of television. Yes. And so in that regard, I would give it an A. Okay. (laughs) All that to say, all that to say, this is a very solid, enjoyable, innovative episode of television. And for that, it gets an A. Yeah. With that, this has been Bottle Episodes. If you've enjoyed being on lockdown with us, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have an idea for a bottle episode from television history or film history that we should cover, or if you're trapped in a single primary location and need to send a distress call, email podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. That's podcastbottleepisodes at gmail.com. Say bye-bye, Courtney. Goodbye, everybody.